The reading today is from 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16. I write these things to you, hoping to come to you soon, but if I should be delayed, I have written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth, and most certainly the mystery of godliness is great. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, and believed on and in the world, taken up in glory. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Lisa. Excuse my water bottle. I'm feeling a little under the weather, so I might need, I might need that later. Well, again, my name's Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity. If I haven't met you, I hope to meet you this morning, and it's good to be with all of you. We are in a sermon series for the new year called Signs of Life, the Metrics of Spiritual Health. The idea behind this series is that just as there are metrics we can look to as an indicator of our spiritual or our physical health and our physical fitness, we can look to blood pressure or temperature and weight and muscle mass and those kinds of things, the Bible also provides us with metrics we can look to as indicators of health for our spiritual lives. And there are many places we can look to to find out what those metrics are. But as we've seen, none of those places, I think, directly addresses this question like 1 Timothy does, the letter of Paul to Timothy. How so? Well, Paul wrote this letter out of an urgent concern. He had heard a report about what was happening in this church, and he had a concern over all kinds of areas of unhealth in this church and in the people Timothy was ministering to. So really, everything in this letter gives us insight into what the Apostle Paul thought was most important to restore health, spiritual health, to people and to a church. But today, we are looking at the place in the letter where Paul comes right out and states his reason for writing this letter to Timothy. Let's read it again in verse 15 or verse 14. I have written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church. And only a few occasions in the entire Bible does a book of the Bible come out and state just outright, this is the purpose of this book or this letter. Very few come and, and tell it straight just like that. This is the main theme and focus. But 1 Timothy does. Paul says it was written for this purpose. So we would know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, the church. In other words, this entire letter was written so that we would know how to act and how to live as family, as God's family. In a letter all about spiritual life and health, Paul says, here's the big idea of this letter that I don't want you to miss Life and health is found in one knowing that a healthy church is like a family and knowing that a person, a Christian can only be alive spiritually, can only be healthy in connection to and as a part of a household, a family. There is no such thing 
as spiritual health, isolated and separated from this family. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Church as household. We're going to talk about what that means. We'll spend a good bit of time unpacking the teaching and the theology behind this idea of church as family. We'll talk about how it's possible. Is it possible to live this out? And thirdly, um, some suggestions on what it might look like. So first, what does it mean? In 1 Timothy, when Paul calls the church a household here, he is using the language of family. Earlier in this same chapter, he compares the leadership of the church. He's talking about elders and deacons in a, in a church. He compares these leaders, the way they lead in the church, to the way that people lead in their households, in their families. If you go back to chapter 3, verse 4, 5, and 12, he says things like, in verse 5, if anyone does not know how to manage his own household or family, how will he take care of God's church? So he's comparing church and household. Writing to the same church, the church at Ephesus, in the book of Ephesians, we already read this in our words of assurance, Paul said, Jesus came and proclaimed the good news of peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. It says, you who are far away, you've been brought near. He doesn't say to God, the holy, omnipotent Lord. He says, you've been brought near into God's house to have access to the Father. He uses the language of family. In another place in Galatians, chapter 6, verse 10, Paul's talking about our obligation as Christians to do good. He says, do good to everyone, especially those of the household of faith. The word household comes up again there. Household, then, is another way. It's actually a much less common way for Paul to say what he usually says using the language of family. This is how he tells Timothy to think of his church. And now, if you've been with us for the past few weeks, you know that Timothy didn't grow up in this church. He was serving this church as a pastor. It was giving him all kinds of problems. He was dealing with all kinds of difficult people in this church. And it looks like Timothy probably wanted to leave and move on to some other church. And Paul says, these are your brothers and sisters. These are your fathers and mothers. This is your family. I want to point out a few examples of where he says this directly to Timothy in this letter. Chapter 4, verse 6. I think we have some of these to display up as I'm reading. 4, 6, he says, As you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, nourished by the words of faith. He says, Your brothers and sisters, your family members, need to be nourished on good teaching, on the words of the faith, just like you do, Timothy. And then in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, he says to Timothy, Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters 
with all purity. He's telling Timothy, don't relate to people as a CEO. It's not a business model. As a manager, as an employee sent over to this church, or an interim pastor on temporary assignment, you relate to the people in this church in the same way that everyone should relate to one another, as you would relate to members of a family. One more, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. It's not directly about Timothy, but about the people in this church. He says, let those who have believing masters not be disrespectful to them because they are brothers, but serve them even better since those who benefit from their service are believers and dearly loved. Now, this is a topic that the New Testament addresses in a number of places where Two members of the same household, a master and a slave, both become Christians. And the question is now for them, now that we have a more fundamental and primary identity as brothers, what does that even mean about how we relate to each other as slave and master? That's another topic. We don't have time to get into that. But that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, now that you're family, everything's changed. He says, the church is a household. The church is a family. A healthy church sees itself and acts like a family. Now, this idea is not just Paul's. It's not just in 1 Timothy. It comes from Jesus. It's everywhere in the New Testament. Jesus was once approached when he was teaching. He said, um, he was teaching, and somebody said to him, hey, you need to stop. Your mother and your brother are over there. They need to talk to you about something. And Jesus responded. He pointed to his disciples. He said, here are my mothers and brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And this was a profound statement, a radical statement at the time. Jesus makes the biological family secondary, and he elevates the family of his disciples as primary. Now, Jesus was the oldest brother in his family. He was responsible for his mom. He was responsible for his brothers. And he was saying that there is a bond and an obligation that went even stronger than this. And that was radical in his time. Later on in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23, Jesus is making a comparison, a distinction between the way that religious groups treated each other at the time, the way that leaders functioned in those groups in very hierarchical ways, and the way that his community would treat one another and see one another. He says this, you are not to be called rabbi. He's telling his disciples, don't have people call you teacher or rabbi, because you have one teacher, and you are all brothers and sisters. Don't call anyone on earth your father because you have one father. Who is in heaven. The word in the New Testament that's translated brothers and sisters is the word adelphoi. Brothers and sisters is adelphoi. It's used 271 times in the New Testament to refer to the relationship of Christians to one another. 271 times. It's used to describe what a church is. Now, family isn't the only word or picture used to describe the church in the New Testament. 
There are other ones, but I want you to listen to how frequently these other pictures are used. They're important, but listen to their frequency. The church as the body of Christ is used 30 times, 18 times in one chapter alone, 1 Corinthians 12. The church as saints or God's holy ones, 30 times. The church as fellowship, 12 times. And the word church, just the word church alone is used 60 times. 271 times the church is described as a family. The conclusion and the picture here is clear. The New Testament says a healthy church is a family. That's the primary way we are to think of the church as a household. Now in 1 Timothy in the New Testament, the teaching then is clear, the implication is clear. A Christian can only be truly alive and spiritually healthy in connection to and as a part of this household or family. There is no such thing as a Christian isolated from, separated from, or only casually connected to their family. Now, in order for us to really feel the sense of what this means and what this meant, we need to know a little bit more about what family looked like and what it meant in the ancient world. Anthropologists break down the way that we function in groups into two main ways in culture. There are collectivist cultures and there are individualist cultures. Collectivist cultures think of the group first and, we, and think of themselves as individuals second. So the group's choices and needs determine my choices and needs. So in the ancient world, pretty much every culture was a collectivist culture. And even today in our world, traditional cultures we could call them collectivists. The group comes first. The individual sees themselves primarily as a part of the group. An individualist culture sees life this way. I see myself as an individual first. My place in the group is second. I choose what groups I will be a part of. My freedom comes first. And pretty much the only culture that is structured in this individualist way is modern Western culture. Now, I want to use an excerpt from a book by a, an anthropologist named Bruce Molina. His book is called Christian Origins and Cultural Anthropology. I know that sounds fancy, but I want to read two excerpts, two descriptions of what it means to be a part of a church. One from an individualistic standpoint, and two, from a collectivist standpoint. And I just want you to listen to these and just tell me, you're not going to all be able to tell me, but feel what's going on inside of you. I want you to think about that. What is it? What are the thoughts and feelings? First, what does it mean to be a part of a church? Well, a person should perceive himself or herself to be an individual, responsible to him or herself for his or her actions and destiny and career and development and life in general. The individual person chooses a church and is free to do what he or she feels right and necessary only if in accord with their personal norms and only if the action is in their best interest. The individual has priority over the church. 
How does that feel to you? Kind of natural? Like, okay, maybe, maybe if there's a few things in there that I don't know if they square with Scripture, but that seems like kind of how we're doing things. Well, let me read a collectivist account of the same thing. What this means is, first of all, that the person perceives himself or herself to be a member of a church and responsible to the church for his or her actions, destiny, career, development, and life in general. The individual person is embedded in the church and is free to do what he or she feels right and necessary only if in accord with church norms and only if the action is in the church's best interest. The church has priority over the individual member. How did that feel to you? A little bit uncomfortable? A little bit like, I have some questions about that. What I just read to you is Molina's description of the early church. His description of what the New Testament describes as the church, as family. It feels very uncomfortable to us in our individualistic mindset. But what the New Testament teaches is that spiritual health can only be found in this kind of collective. Now, in addition to all this, in the, wor- in the world of the New Testament, the strongest relational bond that existed at this time in this culture was the bond between brothers. It was stronger than the bond between husband and wife. At this time, it was a patrilineal society, so power and responsibility was passed down from the fathers to the sons. And so the sons had a bond that was stronger than anything else at this time. Your loyalty, your allegiance, your obligation was to your Adelphoi, your brothers. And this is the word that Jesus and the New Testament picked and said, this is it. This is what we're building. This is what the bond looks like. This is what this group is going to feel like. That challenged the collectivists of their day because what Jesus was saying is the church is your family. Not your biological family, not your biological brothers, but the church is your family. And it challenges us as individualistic people living in an individualistic world. Church is family. What does this mean? I spent a lot of time building up those references and that theology. Because although that idea might not be new to you, church is family. We need to feel the full force of what that means when the New Testament says, brothers, sisters, church is not a once a week event. It's not a professional organization run by the experts. It's not a business. It's not a consumer commodity. It is a family. And this is so powerful. When we begin to think of each other as family. Just this week, my brother, I have one brother, I don't, that's my only sibling, he texted me and he said, I'm coming to L.A. for a business trip. I want to hang out and see the family. And what I didn't say to him was, hey, sorry, bro, but like, we're busy. We have some 
events going on. Our kids have baseball. Amelia has an event. So maybe next time. I said, of course. Like, we're going to figure out how to make this work. We're going to get you to our house so you can spend time with our family. Why? Maybe if somebody else texted me, I probably would have said, sorry, we're busy. We got events. We got this going on. It's going to be too much. Why? Because he's my brother. That's it. That's the only reason I need it. We have a tradition. Uh, we're a Presbyterian church. We have a lot of formalities and traditions and whatnot. And sometimes I lose the, the meaning behind some of these formalities. Because it's like, oh, why do we have to do it all by the book? But one thing that we do when we meet together in a room of uh, fellow pastors and elders, somebody will get up to the front and say, brothers and fathers. And then like, Say whatever they have to say. I'm like, ah, oh, you know, we don't have to do all that. Like, hey, what's up, guys? You know, let's just do this. That's, that's kind of the, the way that I operate. But then I was, re- I was reading this text and realizing how powerful it is to remember when we address our fellow Christians, that we address our brothers and our fathers. This week, someone shared with me an update, just a text update uh, about how they were doing Some of it was good news. Some of it was uh, something that they were struggling with. And I just read that, and I was thinking about this all week, and I said, I said this person's name. I said, this person, I said it out loud. This person is my sister. And I was just like almost crying, which is a lot for me. Just to almost cry. I need to learn how to cry better. But I was like, wow, that changes the way that I hear about her needs in this update that she sent me. Church's household, what does this mean? It means look around you, friends, brothers and sisters. If Trinity OC is your church, these are your brothers. These are your sisters. These are your fathers and mothers. Church's household, how is this possible? You may be saying at this point, maybe. Well, that's not actually my main question. My main question is, is it desirable? Do I want to have such close connections and a collectivist kind of approach to life? Do I want that? And if you're asking that question, I do understand. Because if your experience and idea of family is that family is messy and it can be broken and family is dysfunctional, then you might be saying, why would I want my church to be like that? That's not what I want. Or if your experience of church is that church is broken, church is messy and dysfunctional, or worse, manipulative and abusive, you may have given up hope on church as family. But friends, let me tell you, don't give up hope. We ask the question, is it possible for the church to be family without the abuse of authority? And also without the neglect of proper leadership authority. Is it possible to have strong unity while celebrating differences and diversity and drawing out the best in every individual yet having a common vision unified in heart and mind? Is it possible to deal with conflict and disagreement without squashing dissent? This is possible. Is it possible in Orange County with all the distance that separates us and traffic and all the diversity we have and all the ways that individualism and consumerism has shaped the way that we think about church and do church and all of our busy lives? Is it possible 
This passage says it is. How? Two things. It all comes down to two things that every community, every family, every group has to answer. Who's in charge and who's in? Who's in charge and who's in? Who's in charge of this family? Paul says in verses 14 and 15, I'm writing so you would know how you ought to conduct yourself in God's household, which is the church of the living God. So it is very clear here. Church is God's idea. It's not a man-made idea or a human institution. The church is God's household, the church of the living God. So what this means is if God is not real, forget church. This is not possible. To try and do this collectivist family thing without the living God will not bring life. It will break down. It will end in conflict. It will take life from us. Forget the idea of a church being a family. Without the living God, it's not going to happen. But if there is a living God, a real God who created all things, who rules over all things, who has the power to redeem and restore, if he is over this family, if he is in charge of this family as father, then church as family is possible. And Paul is saying, the church is God's household. Now every family, any group, of any kind has to answer the question, who's in charge? The question of authority has to be answered. Church's family is only possible if we are clear on this. It is not any pastor who's in charge or our favorite teachers. It's not our denomination. It's not our theological approach. All church leadership authority is leadership and authority under the authority of God as Father. Another application of this for all of us, leaders, members of the church, it is pretty easy to critique the church, uh, this church, any church. There are many fair critiques and critiques that should be made. But think about it like this. Would you walk into someone's house as a guest? You walk in and say, who put that table there? It's a weird place for a table. Hmm. And yeah, that's the wrong place for that couch. Ugly curtains, super ugly curtains. And could you, could you show me where the fridge is? I'm pretty hungry. Friends, we need to remember about this church, about any church where God leads you. It is God's house and God's family. He's the one in charge. He's the one who assembles it. Secondly, it's possible because of who's in. Every family and group and community of any kind has to answer the question of authority and also of boundaries. Who's in this community and who is not? Who's out? This is what makes church as family different than any other family, community, and group that has ever existed in the world. Every other family and group is defined by ethnic lines, political lines, biological bloodlines, we define our groups by legal lines. If you're in a, in a sports team, you're, you're in because of your ability to play that sport. In school, you're defined by your performance. In all other religions, you are in based on your belief and adherence to certain practices. But this family, Paul says, is created by a mystery. Look at verse 16. He says, the mystery is great. 
He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on the world, taken up in glory. What's the connection between this and what went before? The connection is this. It's faith in this mystery that that's what gets you in to the family. And he says, great is this mystery. Mystery here and in the New Testament doesn't mean so much a paradox or a puzzle that's hard to figure out. It means something that human wisdom and reason could not come up with and we would not come up with. It's a mystery that God reveals. And Paul says, who's in? Well, the gospel says no one is in by right. No one is in just by birth. You're not just born into this family, and you're not in this family by your performance or your ability. Who's in? It's anyone who believes in this mystery. Anyone who comes through the elder brother. That's the gospel. Now this verse, verse 16, is the gospel in very short and poetic form. It's a shorthand of the gospel. And there's another place that expands on this in Hebrews chapter 2 and 3. Jesus came, Paul says, from heaven. He came to become flesh. He came to die. He was vindicated in the spirit, risen again. And this was his path from humiliation to glory. In Hebrews chapter 2, this idea is expanded upon using the terminology of brothers and sisters in household. I want to read an extended section from Hebrews chapter 2. You can turn there in your Bible. There the author of Hebrews says, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, I want you to pay attention to these family terms. It was entirely appropriate that God, from whom and through whom all things exist, should make the source of their, their salvation perfect through sufferings. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus shared in these, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every way, so he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. For since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Therefore, now chapter 3, brothers and sisters, holy brothers and sisters, who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and priest of our confession. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was in all God's household. For Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder has more honor than the house. Every house is built by someone. The one who built everything is God. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's household as a testimony to what would be said in the future, but Christ was faithful as a son over his household, and we are that household if we hold on to our confidence and the hope in which we boast. The mystery is this. Jesus, our elder brother, 
brings many sons and daughters to glory. How? By leaving his glory and by becoming like us in every way. Suffering in our place. It's the only way for us to get into the family. It's the only way for us to come into the house. The gospel is, if you're in the family, if you're in the house, the only way you got here is because the elder brother let you in. If we know this is how we got into the family, it makes it possible for us to receive each other as family, as we are, and not how we think we should be. This text, Hebrews chapter 2, answers the question of why our elder brother would go to such lengths to bring us into the family. Why? Jesus said, I want you to know what it's like to be in this family, a family of acceptance where no one has to hide because of shame. He says, I'm not ashamed to call you brother and sister, and I never will be. It's a family of understanding. I know what it's like to be human and tempted and suffer. It's a family of compassion where everyone needs mercy and help from him. It's a family of humility when everyone knows they are here because of the faithfulness of another and not their own. And it's this that makes family possible. The mystery of the gospel helps us make sense of the mystery of church and how family is possible. Is that which looks so humble and ordinary and broken, flesh is the place of God's glory. Now notice, whenever the New Testament and when Paul here talks about family, he doesn't say, hey, act like a family. Hey, act like a household. He says, you are family. If you are in the church, you are God's household. The difference is very significant. Church as household is a reality to receive, not an ideal for us to create. Until we see this, we'll be frustrated. We'll be frustrated by the fleshliness, the everyday ordinariness the faux pas and the sins of our brothers and sisters. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book Life Together talks about the difference between the ideal and the real church. Now, we probably all have some picture in our mind of an ideal family. Maybe you think about the family you grew up in and how maybe it fell short of the ideal family in your mind. You may be looking ahead to family, you're not married, no kids, and you're thinking, this is what the ideal family should look like. Or maybe you're raising a family now, and you have an idea of like, this is what the ideal family should be. Like, there's a peaceful board game night, and we're all sitting in a circle, we're, we're singing songs, and as we eat dinner together, we're like smiling, and it's so great. And that's the ideal family. Or maybe you go on Facebook or Instagram, and you see pictures of just little snapshots of families, you're like... Look, that looks like the ideal family. They're all smiling and happy. And look at their vacations. And we get this picture of, man, how come my family is not like that ideal family? 
to paraphrase Dietrich Bonhoeffer, talking about this dynamic, he says this, he who loves his or her dream family more than his or her own family becomes the destroyer of that family. You see how that works? If we love our ideal family more than our real family, we're setting ourselves up for disappointment and bitterness and judgment. He who loves his or her ideal church more than his or her own church becomes a destroyer of this church. Church is household and family is possible as we trust our elder brother Jesus when he says, come into the family. I'm going to give you brothers and sisters and through them, through them, you'll come to know me. I know it doesn't look like it. It doesn't look like the ideal family, but trust me. I don't have time to unpack my third point. I only want to say this. Church's household, what does it look like? It looks like a family. It looks like eating together. It looks like when we have a need, we share that need. It looks like when we have something to give, we share it with other people. And it looks like us coming to the realization that what we want in a family, other people want as well. And what I mean by that is I've been talking with you, I've been here three and a half years, I've been having conversations with you of late. The community that you want, we all want. And we're often waiting for other people to take the first step. Well, why don't you initiate? Why don't you call? Why don't you share? Family. It is broken and messy, but family. It's what we all want. Let's all take that first step towards one another. I'll close with this. Joseph Hellerman wrote a book called When the Church Was Family. It's a great book. I recommend it to you. He said this in that book. Jesus and his followers took their culture's group approach to family life. They appropriated it as a preeminent social model for their local Christian communities. They lived with one another like Mediterranean brothers and sisters. And here it is. And the early Christians turned the world upside down. When the church was a family, the church was on fire. May God set us on fire like that. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that we have access to you. We can call you our Father. We thank you that you're in charge of this family and every single family that gathers in the name of Jesus, our elder brother. I pray that you would fill us with a fresh faith that family like this is possible. As we have brokenness in our relationships and brokenness in our own hearts and lives, help us to see that you can and do put us back together as family. And I pray now as we come to this table that you would work even here in this moment to form us and shape us further into a family that loves one another, serves one another, cares for one another like brothers and sisters. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.